What's up, wizards? Welcome back to another podcast interview with myself, Mahan. Um, I'm delighted to be joined this time by DC Schindler, who is the author of a book called Plato's Critique of Impure Reason. He's also the professor of metaphysics at the John Paul II Institute in Washington and the author of 11 other books. He's a philosopher and a scholar. And in this podcast, we are mainly discussing Plato's philosophy, but also connecting that to Christianity and Catholicism in particular, and how the philosophy can help us make sense of some of the perhaps more unusual ideas there um, that can act as a obstacle for people who are trying to re-enter traditions and understand them again. This is a really deep conversation. I've been very much inspired by David's work, and it was great to be able to actually get to chat with him and ask him all the questions that I've had this entire time. So if you enjoy the philosophical stuff, this is definitely going to be another very important one for you to listen to. If you want to sign up to the Substack, uh, the link is in the description. You'll get the podcast and essays via email and just stops any messing around on social media. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy the podcast. Boom. back everybody it is a great delight and honor to be joined today by dc schindler uh, david is a professor of metaphysics and anthropology john paul ii institute washington uh, he's the author of 11 books including freedom from reality diabolical character of modern liberty and plato's critique of impure reason which is there and i'm sure we'll be talking about today um, i'm a massive fan so it's a great honor to get to speak to david um about these topics and I suppose to start off with what I, we were kind of talking about before was, you know, what inspired you to write this book, David? Why was this um, on your mind? What was the kind of motivation for it? Um, that's, a, that's a great question. I, uh, I fell in love with Plato early on as a freshman in college, um, um, reading The Republic um, my freshman year in a great book seminar. And uh, so he sort of stuck with me. Um, a couple of years after that, fell in love again with uh, with Nietzsche, and uh, so began a certain uh, war in the soul between Plato and Nietzsche. Um, and uh, over time, um, Plato Plato won won out, and uh, for all sorts of reasons. I mean, I think um, even though they're philosophers that in a certain sense have an opposed view of things quite obviously um as george grant once said uh that um you know plato is the greatest philosopher of all time and nietzsche is his greatest critic and the, those two sort of form a, a a nice pair um it 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 seemed to me that um they both on the one hand they both are uh, look at philosophy not as an abstract um uh, purely conceptual activity but they they see it as illuminating the meaning of life and as enabling one to live properly in the world and to um enter into maybe dimensions of things that we tend to overlook so they they unlock the secrets of things 
and in in the case of Nietzsche, that um, the, the secrets all tend to be illusions. Um, so for all the excitement uh, over time that wears thin, whereas with Plato, I think the the secrets that get unlocked just become more and more uh, compelling and interesting. And so that 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 was something that was um, just accompanying my existence for you know a good uh, decade or or, or so. Um, uh, and eventually, um, I struck on the idea. It was actually in graduate school at this point um, of a certain. Um, I came back to the Republic, you know, very long after uh, my initial acquaintance and uh, saw that it was re uh, responding to um, a lot of um, crises that uh, were becoming increasingly apparent to me. So I, you know, made up my mind just to um, to dive into it and and try to follow 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 Plato following Socrates <laughs> uh, into the, the the big questions and see see where it all went. And that was sort of a long answer to your question. No, that's perfect. And it's hit the two kind of threads as well that were coming up there, really, which is the the one thread of the kind of current situation towards reality and truth and this kind of this ridiculous post-truth notion of you know that somehow we're beyond reality or something or we've um the anti-tradition kind of tradition um that's emerged yeah. but then also this the platonic idea of having the that the story contains the philosophy as well this kind right. of um that the republic embodies the truth that it's trying to communicate which i thought was yeah so profound um and really i made a lot of sense of a lot of other texts but i wonder how did you come across that interpretation um because i'd never you know it's you know i never saw it in academic philosophy ever i you know it's fine i i mean that that that's that i mean just hearing you articulate that sends a, a sort of um uh uh just a thrill through me there, there's something about that notion that i is it's just so so compelling so where did it come from i you know, um, I was really privileged to have an extraordinary um, teacher in graduate school. Uh, Eric Pearl is his name, um, uh, a living, breathing Neoplatonist philosopher. And I, I, I took in the end, uh, I think, something like six courses from him. I mean, he really was my mentor. And, and I, I recall at one point um, he had made an observation in the, in the symposium um, that Socrates um, represented the reality of the good, um, and Socrates, uh, Alcibiades sitting between Socrates and Agathon. Agathon has the name of the good, but he's sort of a, a false image, and Socrates is the reality of the good. And um, that that I, idea struck me as so true and illuminating about the symposium. And um, a year or so later, was reading the Republic, and that must have been in the back of my mind. Uh, I, I, I just, it occurred to me that um, uh, that's what's going on in the Republic. It's not, maybe it's not as obvious in one sense as it is in the symposium. Um, but once you see it, it's impossible not to see it anymore. It becomes such an, it, it makes sense of so much that's going on in the, in the dialogue. And, and it brings together all of the themes um, in a way that's really powerful. Um, 
So I, I, I would thank Eric Pearl, <laughs> I guess, for for the, the impetus. I actually have his book, Theophany, uh, which I've been uh, right. working through as well. Yeah, also brilliant. Um, but that's because it, it made so much sense of the dialogues as this kind of whenever I encountered the dialogues during my BA in philosophy, like it was presented as like these are just a bunch of bad arguments in a sense. Like these are kind of when you take them out, they don't make sense. Plato has this right. theory of forms, but, you know, it's not really described anywhere. Like he never wrote a treatise. It's just some right. reason he hid them in these weird stories. And but when you start to look at them all as exploring something and each one adding on to it sequentially, like snapshots of this truth that's beyond the text, in a sense, yeah. um, you start to get a very different picture, um, which I found you just realize that Plato's the best. Like you're like, wow, yeah. this is not only the greatest work of philosophy, but also of literature. And he's kind of bridged the <laughs> yeah. two. Um, it's it's really I yeah I, I I agree wholeheartedly with that. Um, that the 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 book is is a is a bomb. Uh, and people use that word a lot now. But I mean that that there's there's something just uh, explosive about it. But but you're right. I mean the 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 uh, you know the tendency there was for for decades, especially in in English language scholarship was to you know symbolize the arguments to formalize them take them out of the context and so many of those things is provocative i mean everyone agrees that their raise fundamental questions are very provocative and this is why you know they're so useful in intro to philosophy classes and so forth but typically um you end up with this very um unsatisfying uh um conclusion that Plato didn't believe that one can know the truth, you know, this sort of skeptical reading of Plato that that, that um, begins to make any sort of sensible person um, uh, just, you know, bored and tired of this kind of spinning of wheels for no, for no purpose. It's, it's very different if you think, you mentioned a moment ago, um, the, the philosophy embedded in the story, you know, if you, if you begin to think of um, of drama, you know, the Greeks invented drama as much as they did uh, philosophy. Uh, think of drama as an enacting of uh, of uh, drama itself. The the action is the, is an argument, as uh, one philosopher put it. Um, the action itself is a, it kind of unfolds something that you um, uh, that that exceeds conceptual. Uh, formulations, but not in a way that makes conceptual formulations irrelevant. Um, uh, you know, this is something maybe we can talk about a little bit, but um, it's so common to, uh, if one ever gets a sense of non-conceptual truth, that's always then opposed to concepts, um, you know, that almost always ends up in this kind of irrationalism that's juxtaposed to rationalism and and it's uh i i never quite understand why people can't say not that truth is non-conceptual but that it's not only conceptual you know that that it's a both and one needs to 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 say and to show and i think that that's that's what happens in the platonic dialogues is is you know, I, it, just a few days ago, it occurred to me that the what is question that Plato always asks, that's a summons. I think that's the way to look at it. It's, it's a, it's a, um, 
you know, he, he's not he's not trying to get an answer so that the question be, can be closed. But the very asking of the question gathers people around a truth that they that they can see together, um, e e even if it exceeds what they can say about it. It's a very different way of thinking than we're accustomed to. Yeah, and that the stories kind of exemplify the process that he's talking about in a sense as well. Like even though the answers are inconclusive in a kind of propositional sense, it's a call to action to engage in that process and to take it as seriously as Socrates does, which is that he forfeits his life for it. Um, that's right. And Yeah, that's right. That's a supreme action. Yeah. I mean, it's a, a hell of an ideal, <laughs> quite the example. But the yeah, and that, I mean, it reminds me of John Verveke's work, who I was where I heard about the book, because he said, you know, this is the best book on Plato. And I said, well, I have to read this book. And then it was completely true. And I was, uh, but but he talks about the the truth of transformation that mm -hmm. to, for certain, I, I watched your conversation with John actually recently. And I know he mentioned that the, certain truths are only revealed to us after transformation, which is very different to the Cartesian model where you can do it sort of, um, there's a method to find truth, but this is actually that we have to change to find truth and that the drama is about that change, about insight and about how we kind of transform ourselves. No, that's, that's um, uh, you know, that connects with a, uh, another idea that, that um, has occupied me for a long time, which, um, I uh, got through um, the theologian Hansers von Balthasar. Um, he writes a lot about the transcendentals, uh, beauty, goodness, and truth, and 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 um, uh, presents them in an, an unaccustomed order. So typically, in a kind of traditional Thomist view, truth comes first, and then goodness, and beauty may or may not arise, uh, uh, depending on the Thomas you, you talk to. Well, Balthazar begins with beauty and then goodness and truth. And I, I, I think this is this is actually sheds light on Plato as well. Beauty strikes one and kind of invites one in, but in a way that requires the action of drama and the good. And then the fruit of that is insight and, and truth. So that that's that comes at the end of a of a, of a you know, transformative process. One, one is therefore sort of elevated into the truth rather than trying to um, uh, reduce the truth to one's preconceived categories, which is exactly the, 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 the Cartesian method. Yeah, and that, that's so exemplified in the cave as well, which I found so interesting was the idea of that as kind of a microcosm of what's going on in the whole Republic in this journey of, that there are kind of limits to what we know. So we have to almost go on a quest to see mm -hmm. our own ignorance, to then actually start to kind of see what's outside of it. Um, yeah. And that there, that's how we kind of get there. Yeah, no, that was one of the things that, that sort of struck me um, is uh, it, it's interesting. He doesn't, he, he doesn't mention the good in the, in the uh, uh, prologue, you know, the, the, the opening scene of the Republic. Um, where it would have been natural to to mention it, and and you you, you know there are various ways to to read that, but one is that um, um, the the uh, horizon that's available inside the cave can't allow the good to show itself in in a certain respect um, as it is, and so the attempt to 
force it into that horizon is always going to betray it and falsify it and 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 reduce it in all sorts of ways. So what one needs to do is is journey, as you say, upward and 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 out this ecstatic movement, in order then to be able to see to see the light that that was guiding one all along. So it's not. I mean, the the interesting thing is you realize that the light was already there. <laughs> but you couldn't see it as such initially. Mm, yeah, that it's the light that kind of shines on everything already, but that, yeah, the experience kind of puts it in context almost. Um, and kind of, because what is something that I thought that I really wanted to broach with you in this conversation, which was that I hadn't seen you talk about, is the the connection between Platonism and obviously Catholicism and Christianity. Mm. Um, yeah. Because that's kind of somewhere where I'm at. I was raised secular as an atheist and kind of uh, never had any connection to religion, but now through philosophy and through Platonism and through exploring religion, I've kind of gone, oh, okay, this actually makes a makes huge deal sense. of sense. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. wow, I think yeah. this is true, I think. Like, I've really kind of seen, and, and that idea of the good as, you know, not mm-hmm. being an object of sight, but that by which we see and connecting mm-hmm. that to God as well, that God isn't this object of sight, but is something pre-categorical in a sense um it's it's part of how it's the the sun that we see with the light on everything um so i wondered it's a massive question but um like how do you see the platonism connecting into christianity no that's really interesting i i mean in a way i mean i was born and raised catholic but um you know as one often does as a as a teenager i mean that that tends to disappear from the horizon of you know what's interesting what's going on and it was um for me you know discovering philosophy and and the good i mean it's interesting this notion of the good that uh of sort of brought me back um uh once i realized that 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 what plato means by the good is what christians mean by god uh not only i mean you know that that entails a very interesting transformation but but it but it's interesting you know so uh, i uh some people um have accused me of reading christianity into the republic because there's so many sort of christian themes of incarnation and so forth and it's you know it's funny i i mean i can see why one would think that but but uh that was not at all my intention and i um um you know so there certainly wasn't any kind of strategy there and I just see this as the co- the most coherent interpretation of the Republic on its own terms that I can give, and it just so happens to fit um, with a, with a kind of a, a Christian incarnational view. And you know, I mean, the thing is that that if you study the history of um, you know Western thought, um, that's the cr- Christians said over and over again that Plato is in a way. Um, uh, a philosophy that seems to be ready-made for the Christian transformation. There, there really is a kind of um, simpatico to use a, a, you know, maybe a trivial word there. But there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, um, um, a certain fittingness. You know, on the the flip side, there's also this concern. Uh, um, there are a lot of people that think that Plato has been bad for Christianity. Platonic dualism in here, um, as as having uh, uh, introduced problems into Christianity, and you know the more I've 
studied and thought about this, the, the, the more problematic that judgment seems to me. Um, the, uh, uh, the greatest Platonists were always anti-Gnostic. Um, and uh, the kind of dualism that people are concerned about um, are found in modern thinkers like Descartes. Um, but it's, it's uh, Descartes and Plato couldn't be further apart uh, in spite of sort of superficial similarities. Um, so I, I think I think it's quite healthy, actually. The, the Platonic influence is a very healthy one in, in the Christian tradition. Yep. And even a Neoplatonism, I suppose, you can see so much in Plotinus, who I've been kind of um, reading about lately. Um, I just read Pierre Hadot's book, um, Plotinus, mm. The Simplicity of Vision, and I've been writing a bit about it, and I can see... Just so many, so much convergence, it seems to me, between it that really has lent um, just a lot of credence, a lot of understanding. It's helped me understand more what I would have thought about Christianity in light yeah. of these kind of other practices and to see it as a way of life rather than just a system of thought. Like right. that religions are kind of engines of transformation. They're not just propositional systems of abstract facts in a correspondence kind of way. No, that's right. And, and, and visions of, of reality, not just um, private matters of private belief. I mean, it has to do with the nature of order, you know, so that's the order of the soul. But you can't really address the questions of the order of the soul without thinking about the order of the polis, the, you know, the order of the city, and, and then further the order of the cosmos. I mean, these things, I mean, that's, that's one of the great insights of Stoicism um, is, is the, the, the thread that ties all of these things together. Um, I, I, you know, the, there's a kind of materialist drift in Stoicism that is always, uh, that has always troubled me, but, uh, but, but the, this, the sense of, of, a, uh, an order that links cosmic order to civil order to the order of the soul, I think is, is indispensable. And you mentioned Plotinus, you know, I, the, 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 uh, the older I get, the better Plotinus gets for me. I, I, he, 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 um, um, I, uh, have had occasion to, to read in, in, in with a lot of attention his essay on, um, his Aeneid on, on freedom. And I think, I think that's one of the great masterpieces of, of ancient philosophy. Um, that that's another really mind-blowing text um, yeah as I you, think, I mean, you, yeah i've been finding i mean i in the same sense that i i get a sense that there's something very important but obviously my own understanding of them is quite simplistic at this point and it can seem maybe um i i guess yeah a little bit esoteric at times but i feel like it's right. not actually esoteric it's actually deeply practical but it's just very hard to talk about probably no you're 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 right yeah no that's why i it's 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 um uh, i think that's one of the reasons that he has been ignored or marginalized for so long um people think of him more as a, a religious figure sort of mystical thought than not really philosophy and and uh and i i you know you can see why people would make that judgment but but i, I think there's there really is an extraordinary um, uh, vision of things. Um, you mentioned that you're reading uh, Pearl's book, Theophany. Um, that that's about Dionysius the Areopagite. But there's there's a real um, he uh, that that that's a great way actually into 
Plotinus in the in the the whole Neoplatonic vision. Um, I think it's one of the best books around for that. Also, his uh, his book Thinking Being, mm-hmm. um, Pearl's book. Yes, really yeah. Well, also on the mm-hmm. Yeah. And in terms yeah. of operationalizing, I suppose Platonism. That's what has kind of has taken me to Plotinus was John Ravakey's work and describing how he combined it with Aristotelian science and Stoicism and Platonism. Yeah not in a way that he thought he was innovating, but it was actually to flesh out Platonism, to be like, this is actually how you do this process that he's talking about, this ascension to the one. And that the, the talking about the levels of the self connecting to levels of reality, I think, because my, I'm, I'm trying to be practical in a sense that I, I yeah. do a lot of these things to communicate to people tools that I think you can use to progress yourself better or to to order yourself is another word that would be pretty important there because of this um the platonic assumption that we're kind of multiple things in conflict with each other and we need a proper value system to order that and that connects us to reality i think my generation are really lacking that kind of normativity a lot Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and it leads to a fragmentation in a sense of yeah yeah, I mean, if I if I'm um, to uh, you mentioned a few things there, just uh, uh, yeah. one comment first about the uh, Aristotle and the Stoicism. Mm-hmm. One of the one of the um, uh, best reasons to read Plotinus is that he gathers up. I mean, he was he had read all of that, and he gathers up the pre-Socratic philosophers, Plato, um, Aristotle. You know. Um, uh, people think of him as a Platonist rather than an Aristotelian, but um, you know the, the 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 key Aristotelian notions of act and potency. Um, he he actually wrote far more about that than Aristotle did. I mean, it's 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 interesting. I, so I mean, Aristotle's taken up there and Stoicism and so forth. So he he really is kind of an he's an attempt to gather together the whole of ancient philosophy. Um, according to an organizing principle, what is the principle of the good? <laughs> and so, and then this this connects to the the other point that you were just making about making it practical and 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 recognizing that this has to do with the way we live our li- lives and so forth. I, th- I think one of the um, great um, contributions that one can receive from going back to this you know ancient tradition is recognizing that the that the order comes not through um, one's own kind of self, uh, you know, efforts at self-mastery or, or trying to, I'm trying to make myself be like this. I'm trying to overcome this problem. And you, you end up um, fighting with yourself. And, and, you know, the problem with fighting with yourself is that you always lose. I mean, by definition. Um, uh, whereas what, 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 what Plato, uh, I think one of the, the, fundamental insights and one of the, the things that makes his philosophy so powerful in addition to just its brilliance but just powerful is it recognizes the way that beauty and goodness um draws you know bring us to order so that that, that we're, we're struck and you know it's it, this would be if you know you mentioned the Chris this would be like the the philosophical um um version of grace uh that 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 there's a there's a um the 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 love of 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 goodness and beauty actually serves to bring together 
and bring you know introduce order into the soul and bring together the various parts of one's one's fragmented personality uh, inevitably you know fractured personality bring them to order so it's um i think that's that's a, a, a can be a very healing thing to recognize and and there's also i mean so that you'd say it's not so much kind of an encratic type of thing it's more Sofferson, it's more the desire, the love of the good that is what right. has the the organization. I think the interesting thing about Plato as well that he kind of uses the metaphor in the Republic of that that organization of the self is the organization of the city, in a sense. Yeah, there's that. That's right. Kind of fractal layering. That's right. Yeah. No. And that's that's why I mean it's one of the things um, that that I think is beneficial uh, here too is recognizing. I mean. When one sort of discovers the beauty of these sorts of things, one can, um, uh, there's a temptation to turn it into kind of a, um, a reductive sort of self-help. I'm going to work on myself and transform myself. And of course, that's, that's a crucial part of things. And there's something essential and beautiful about that. But um, what I think Plato had such a profound uh, sense of and uh, um and I've, I've i've come to realize that there's far more built into what he means by justice than i have have realized I and mean, this is something that is is just re very very recently becoming clear to me um that that these are not personal problems these are problems with the, the culture the order of of uh society you might say um the meaning of politics um you know not in the normal not in the conventional sense of politics but in the in the deep sense of uh the nature of community and so forth that these are are, are we we can't solve them as these problems individually they're things that we have to do together um and think structurally as well as personally um if that makes sense yeah, and it's kind of reminding me, I was reading today uh, one of your essays, it was about religious liberty and the Christian tradition, um, and that a lot of these ideas from the foundation of Western thought, probably Platonic ideas and early Christian ideas, are kind of built into the foundation of the law that we exist in now. I was having this argument with somebody recently uh, about kind of the... The notion that in the DSM they define all the kind of psychopathologies in the world, but they don't tell you what optimal human functioning is, and because well, you don't yeah. want to define, you know, the positive side of it, but we can define the negative. But I said the law defines a positive side because in the law you can't say I want to do whatever, you know, I want to go out yeah. and steal things or I want to do this. Like the law is kind of unequivocal about how how we should be and who we should be, and to a certain extent what the reality should be. Um. So do you think there's a understanding these ideas can help us kind of understand the world we live in, the, the culture and the legal and why it's like, do you think part of the chaos at the moment is because people have forgotten that, like that it's just. Uh, yes. I mean, I think that's, that couldn't be clear. And, and, you know, the, the problem is that what we think of what law is um, for, for Plato, you know, the law is, is an art is in a way, an articulation of love of the good that sort of 
spelled out what it means. And and when when you recognize that, you actually see how it's possible to love law. You know, it's 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 interesting. You know that um, that of course was crucial to the the Hebraic uh, tradition, the love of the law. And from a modern liberal perspective, it's it's hard to know what that could possibly mean to love the law because that we we don't we think of the law as a purely pragmatic thing that's that's meant to um, enforce order, and it's you know increasingly we think of it as simply um, we put it in the terms of Thrasymachus from the beginning of the Republic, you know that the basically the law is whatever the people in power have decided is beneficial um, uh, and, and ultimately beneficial to them. And so, so there's nothing there to, 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 to love. Um, by, and, and so, so the law becomes nothing but a, a kind of imposed restraint on our activity. But if you think of the law as actually an articulation of what it means to love the good, then there's some, the goodness and beauty are actually built into the law. And, and so law then operates something like, as I was saying earlier, like grace in the sense that it, um, it presents an ideal that uh, inspires and draws and enables. So the, very, the law itself then gives the capacity to fulfill it. There's something, there's something generous that's built into law. I, I just think this is so different from the way we, we tend to think these days. But I, I you know, if, if we were to really take that seriously, it would uh, imply quite a bit of change. It's completely antithetical, I would say, to how people are thinking about it at the moment, which is so interesting even hearing you say it, because it's that has made more sense to me as I've kind of gotten older. But the I can see a lot of people that that's kind of, there's an alienation that's happening because of that, I think, because from our cultural roots and i mean i'm irish and ireland is a catholic country it's a huge part of our i mean our laws when we change from breton ancient celtic laws to the more modern ones was saint patrick i mean he was the editor-in-chief of the the laws that uh, the transition to like a modern state um so it's hard to not deal with these philosophical theological ideas when you're you're talking about that and um, yeah, I think the modern individual is very disconnected from that tradition, from those roots. No, that's right. No, it's, it would be interesting just, I mean, to reflect on why St. Patrick did this. You know, I mean, the, the, uh, that, that um, you know, here's someone who's, who's concerned about Christianity, but that is expressed in a kind of spontaneous, natural way in this idea that you want to institutionalize in the pot. So, I mean, the word institutionalize for us is a purely negative thing, but if you think of institutionalize as just making concrete and real what, what is true, um, that, that, that um, impetus to, to establish order there is an expression of Christian faith. And that, I mean, that, that again, that just puts it in a very different context really fascinating and as an Irish person it was quite shocking to kind of read that and to see the because this was when writing came to Ireland as well in the 5th and 6th century which was from Christian monks also I mean until then the law was an oral tradition and you had poets that would recite the law essentially um, and would learn it stanza by stanza Um, and so when it was written down St. Patrick had and it seemed that he confirmed it 
with the word and something that came up with that the issue was about forgiveness because the Celtic mm. tradition had these kind of honor killings and a system of payment for wrongs um, and that the Christian notion of forgiveness was um, a, a bone of contention essentially with that kind of Interesting. traditional way that I thought was very, because it's, it's also now, I mean, the issue of human value of why people should be treated as individuals and have, you know, the assumption of innocence and free yeah. speech and all these like rights or I think it's going to be very hard to understand ourselves without the understanding of the tradition now. Well, this, yeah, this raises, I mean, um, no, thank you for that. And now I want to read about this. This is, this is intriguing me. I, yeah, I, it's like... a, kind of, I, I only discovered I was writing a short film about a father whose son has been murdered based on a short story that I had published, um, it, whose son has been more murdered in Northern Ireland in a kind of sectarian event. And the father is trying to forgive the killer um, based on an actual father called Michael McGoldrick whose son was a taxi driver who was murdered and he was okay. going to commit suicide um, with his wife after because he couldn't actually couldn't live anymore. Um, wow. And he had an experience where he, he, he saw God essentially, or he felt this experience of that he was a father who lost his son as well, in a sense. And wow. that um, gave him the strength to kind of forgive, to try and do something else, you know, not to bring more pain into this um into the suffering that was already ongoing in the place. And I j yeah. it just struck me that like, because I read lots of cases in, in preparation for this and mm -hmm. you couldn't do that without the religious. There's something like that would be so difficult and Ireland couldn't do that. That's why I suppose linking it to the ancient Celtic tradition, like that couldn't, you had these constant in-group fighting, one group yeah. hits another one, yeah. tit for tat, this kind of endless, like we see now with feuding left and right, like the forgiveness which is the Christian thing, I think. Um, yeah, it's so yeah. essential to being able to move on and to resolve yeah. these kind of things. So that was, yeah. I, if, yeah. if you wouldn't mind uh, sending me your story, I would really yeah, love yeah, to, definitely. to read it. I'd, I'd love to read it. Um, yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you mentioned forgiveness there and then also the, the uh, St. Patrick Bring writing. You know, the, the, um, uh, that would be one thing that distinguishes, it seems to me, Christianity from Neoplatonism. Mm -hmm. um, or, first of all, forgiveness. That that that's um, this. We we had a, a faculty discussion of, of Sophocles uh, a couple weeks ago, and um, that question came up here. That uh, it seems, um, however much of an anticipation of Christianity that one can find in in uh, in the, among the Greeks. The theme of forgiveness is not really there, and that that's that's an intriguing point that that I'd like to to think about. You get some, you get something close to it with so you know Socrates. There really is a kind of love of enemy there uh, that is you know hard to deny, but it's not quite the same thing as forgiveness. And then the other thing about about writing, you know, um, in in the book, uh, I I try to make an argument that Plato has a much more positive view of writing than he's rec typically recognized as having, you know, that, that, that there is, there is something about the descent into the cave, but nevertheless, and I, and I, and I think that that's um, really important to see, to understand Plato correctly. I mean, otherwise things just become um, sort of ridiculous. 
uh, all that being said, there there is something, um, you know, it's hard to think of writing as essential for Plato in the way that the Christian tradition came to see. And that, that why that is, is that would be something really interesting to reflect on. I mean, you know, Plotinus didn't want to write any of his Aeneids. Uh, um, his student um, really, you know, forced him to at the end uh, uh, just to make sure that, that, you know, his insight didn't disappear with, you know, in, in history. And, and we can all be grateful for that. But, but um, the, you know, the, and Socrates, of course, never wrote. There, there's something about um, writing that, that uh, I, I think is distinctively, I mean, in a way, it's, it's also Jewish. It's also Roman, um, uh, but it's not, it's not Greek. Um, yeah, I don't, do, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, probably... and I mean, the type of writing is interesting as well because yeah. the dialogues and also thinking about the Bible, I mean, that there's, there's stories a lot of the time. And there's yeah. a lot contained even within the story that's the language of stories I found because that's what I studied, I suppose, when I did my master's and I've written a huge amount of stories and plays and um, I've kind of it that there's a way of thinking and story writing that can kind of bootstrap you to insights that you don't have necessarily. You can try and point at things that you couldn't say just in a monological kind of sense um, to yeah. hint at stuff. Yeah. And so maybe the use of that writing as well is in kind of a parable sense whereby you can point people towards things that are actually beyond language, but also yeah. Yeah. it's a tool. Because I, I see what you're saying about Plato with the, the criticism of artists and poets and right. Right. particularly, right. Um, but also him using drama and myth. Yeah, yeah, no, and you're you're the the the, the point about um, di dialogue that there's something that can come to expression between people in conversation that can't uh, simply uh, be expressed monologically. There, there's a really profound truth to that, which is connected to that earlier point about you know problems being not personal problems but also social problems. That 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 this is. These are things that that require a kind of communal deliberation and um, um, and not just for practical purposes. It's not just practically you need to think about it. Maybe one person will have an idea that another doesn't have. And so, I mean, all that is true. But there's something about just the very um, uh, sort of ontologically speaking, uh, two souls in conversation that uh, something... Uh, comes to be between them that is bigger than either one of them individually that's really crucial to the whole point. i'm thinking of the logos i mean dialogos the yeah that that kind of you know when two are gathered in my name the name. yeah right <laughs> right yeah why why two are gathered right? yeah and more and but with writing yeah. that's something that's because writing is yeah. often thought as a very solitary thing but i think you're also talking to yourself in your head. You're building all these inner characters um, in a way that's yeah. refining thought to be more dialogical. You know, yeah. you're kind of adding weight to different sides and this right. kind of flexibility of taking on perspectives that I think is never perfect, but certainly can develop oneself more in that kind of, like yeah. the Socratic, I suppose, um, ideal of yeah, being able to talk to yourself. I mean, it's interesting. We I mean, just think about what what if you had Socrates but no Plato? 
or what if you have Plato but no Socrates? I mean, th there's something about the relationship between Plato and Socrates that's sort of crucial to the whole Platonic phenomenon, you know? And that they're almost like a father and son, which I thought yeah. was very interesting in terms of like, there, there seems to be that kind of almost relationship between them and his embodiment yeah. as the good and that Plato sacrificed so much of his life to write about okay. Socrates, to bring him to other people because Socrates loved him and he loved Socrates and he wanted to express that love to other people in a way yeah. that is um, almost exemplifies again the process that he's kind of yeah, about. and and, and the, the the thought of exemplification is so crucial here too, because, um, uh, and this kind of ties a number of things we've been talking about together. You know, it's 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 not simply a set of propositions. You know, uh, genuine truth in the sense of um, not just correct ideas or something, but truth as a kind of manifestation of reality. Um, that that's something that. Uh, uh, can only be that 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 um, can only be shown dramatically, and so you, you need you know there there has to be an example there has to be um, some kind of a witness a, 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 a you know a martyr to use the the Greek word for for witness that um, uh, in addition to saying it makes it real in in the way um, he or she lives and, and uh, uh, yeah, that's indispensable. I mean, whenever you talk to people who have had um, what John Raveki calls, you know, an awakening to meaning, I mean, almost without exception, it's through meeting somebody. Um, there's, there's, there's a, there's, there's a, 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 another person there somehow. And that, that's interesting. Why, why wisdom of this sort has to be handed down in a personal way and not simply, yeah, just registered. It's kind of an argument for the tradition as well, in a sense of carrying forward this kind of example through generation after generation. And then we abstract from the example, a kind of meta example, which we can talk about in stories and yeah. we can exemplify, but that that becomes quite stale if it isn't again brought down into yeah. individual lives and shown and, Maybe there's a bit of a dearth of that. It's interesting. I mean, I was a big, fan, a big fan of Jordan Peterson, who kind of got me into a lot of his kind of psychological interpretation of biblical series and stuff, got me back into it in a sense and helped me kind of get over that. But he was the first adult who I ever heard defend Western culture in wow. 23 years of my life. That's extraordinary. I've never heard yeah. anybody ever mount an argument or why Western culture was a good thing. Yeah, no, isn't that? And then, and then you, 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 you hear that, and you just think, why didn't anybody? And then you start to discover the tradition, and you think these, these are these are treasures of extraordinary oh. value, and nobody, and they're just lying there in the streets. You know, I, it, it's it's really something that when I when I first started, you know, waking up mm. <laughs> to use that imagery that was always my my experience was just why didn't somebody tell me this sooner um <laughs> yeah and that, that seems to be you know that might, it might always be the case that one has that experience that there's a moment where one discovers and and it's you know through another 
but but you're right i think in in the times in which we live um that is a is a rarer experience although i'm just now learning i mentioned to you i'm, I'm a very kind of low-tech sort of person um but i'm discovering that there's this this universe that's opening up on you know on youtube now with people like John Verveke and and you know Jordan Peterson and and Bishop Barron and Jonathan Peugeot and yeah. and various people that I mm. you know ha had known very little uh, mm. about um, and uh, you, you, um, you know this it's curious that this hyper technological medium would be the way that people are rediscovering you know, ancient wisdom. I mean, that's I, it's very I mean, probably one of the only silver linings, to be honest, in my opinion, <laughs> like that's yeah. how I think the digital world, because I mean, that's also something I think maybe we could touch on just to finish, really, which is the digital world and the the relationship there, because in I'm studying social media, obviously. So I'm I spend a lot of time thinking about what that is and why it's so compelling to people and what it's doing to our attention i spoke to john verveke about it as well actually when we did a podcast um and what i think is happening there a lot is it's picking up the slack from the absence of wisdom and spiritual traditions it's mm -hmm. organizing mm -hmm. people's attention and people's experience and giving them a lens to look at the world it's essentially like a video game that has levels mm -hmm. and but yeah. kind of gamifying your life uh, but in a way that's deeply unsatisfying um yeah yeah i think and maybe the the other kind of more positive side could right. have an influence on making that better right. but um, right no i mean i because it's it's a mixed thing i you know uh uh i think there's a great danger in yeah. ones coming to wisdom through the internet i mean that just that that just that's just not possible you, you know, very in risky. Some, yeah in some in some respect and on the other hand you have to say you know um the fact that these figures are popping up with enormous popularity, you, you realize that it's kind of evidence of a pervasive hunger for reality, for, 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 for deeper meaning. And again, the irony that this hunger for reality is bringing people to YouTube is just so strange. And yet, um, you know, uh, I think that, that it's, it's, yeah, it's a comp, it's complicated it's complicated yeah the hunger for reality and i suppose but maybe it i think at best it could be a way of bringing people into more positive communities and returning them to traditions probably yeah. like as you were yeah. saying it does require right. this human element we need to be able right. to be with people and do these things together it doesn't really work if we're all just in pods um no and that's the thing i mean you know it may be that one is um uh introduced to certain ideas in through this medium but but insofar as those those ideas really take hold it seems to me naturally they lead one to um take one's family life a little more seriously and and you know um um uh honor friendship more uh sincerely and so forth and 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 certain practices um can can arise um in a way that so it's not simply that you're you're plugging in more and more or something. I mean, cause that, that would just be, um, that would be such a sort of performative contradiction. Yeah. It would just be this endless kind of, you're just watching tons of videos and not really doing yeah. anything. <laughs> it doesn't go anywhere, yeah. but it's interesting. Yeah. A lot of these problems that we're talking about as well, in terms of the law and 
understanding the law is is what people are running into in the regulation of social media and digital technology mm. is it's actually mm. really hard to regulate information environments because what's true information and what's false information yeah. <laughs> like you know the the misinformation disinformation and what is it to be connected to reality is like i think that's actually part of the reason it's so hard to regulate it is because we're trying to have this kind of pluralist idea but then that's ending up with everybody has these eccentric realities that are personalized algorithmically and people can't even they're living in different worlds essentially right there's no right and you right and that that's exactly right you think that you're connecting with other people but in fact um your experience of things is infinitely different from others that might be living right next door to you i mean oddly and so yeah no it's 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 really it's there there and and of course as the technology increases with the deep fakes and so and so forth i mean um it's getting to the point where um you know again plato is getting truer and truer i mean the the allegory of the cave is is becoming so re- more real than it ever it's has it's almost been. like they're trying to build the cave i really <laughs> it's amazing how like it's almost like that was the model for it but it's actually yeah. even more devious because the yeah. The symbols on the walls are actually targeted to your particular yeah. biases and whatever will, you know, keep you actively looking at it for longer, whatever's addictive, whatever is a bit of a sore spot or extreme or angry. But um and it's yeah, I it's extraordinary. Yeah, and we need a new Socrates then. We need and but that's the thing, I think Plato holds the way out for a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Um but I think in the current paradigm of this kind of nominalist, maybe scientific worldview it actually lacks the metaphysical to deal with this issue of what is true and what is because if truth you know this is the fact checker kind of phenomenon of you're just going to fact check things but i don't know you know it's kind of it's i don't know if it's a possible thing to achieve really um that way yeah you know correct facts is not that's not the same thing as truth no you're not going to have a board that's going to certify what's yeah true for everybody yeah. yeah i mean the whole horizon needs to change that's the that's that's what uh plato was saying in the in the beginning of the republic you know that's why you need to start. <laughs> yeah start the journey out you can't actually communicate it in the terms that are given to you and, and within the horizon that that you're um um you know that's been imposed uh at the outset yeah so that's the task that faces us Yes, and it is quite a task indeed. But I, I am kind of optimistic that in the the adversary of this social media kind of world, there is also the potential, I think, for for some very large developments that could potentially be good, but also could be, you know, the end game, really, of whatever's going yeah. on. Um, yeah. Some sort of weird Matrix type yeah. terror film, but... Yeah, that's that's the uh, yeah that's the drama that that uh, this next generation is going to undergo, no yeah. doubt. And that's when being a philosopher will be the only job left because the AI can do everything else. So as I keep telling my mom, it's not a stupid decision. It'll be <laughs> it'll work out that's eventually. But um, thank you so much, David. I, I really appreciate you making time. This has been a fantastic conversation. Yeah, um, yeah I've really enjoyed it. I'll link all the books and everything in the description. And I really encourage people to delve into your work because it's, you know, enlightening. Um, it's perfect for the times that we're in.